All right, y'all. Well, we're, we're jumping back into the book of Isaiah. But before we talk about Isaiah, let's talk about something happy. Maybe one of my favorite things I get to do as a pastor, one of my favorite jobs um, is, is to be able to preside over a wedding, uh, to officiate a wedding. And if you've been to weddings, uh, you can think of all of the fun things that occur at a wedding, yes? Um, maybe to you, the best part of the wedding was the, the best man's speech and uh, how terrible it might have been. Uh, my younger brother threatened to kill my wife, Kristen, in his best man's speech. So that was a little iffy. It's like, you don't do that. Um, uh, maybe for you, the best part of a, a wedding is the dancing afterwards, and, and you're like, I didn't know the, the father of the bride had those types of moves. <laughs> Way to go. <laughs> and just awkwardly dancing. Um, but for me, one of my favorite parts of a wedding um, is, is that, that moment in the ceremony uh, when, when you see um, the, the bride coming down the aisle. And I get the best seat in the house. Um, if I'm officiating, I'm standing right there. And what happens? The music starts playing. The doors open. And she comes down the aisle. And everyone stands and turns to face her, and as, 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 as she comes down the aisle, I mean, she, she's radiant, right? She looks, and, but here's what I enjoy the most. As, I'm, as this is happening, and all eyes are on her, I get to peek at the groom. Because if you look at the groom in these moments, You can see and feel the love that is just coming out. And you can just see the groom is just holding back with all his might, his love, because he's just holding back all these tears. Because he just loves her so, so much. Just to sit so happy to see his bride coming to him. Maybe that same emotion happens when, if you're a new parent and you have this child, and you're like, I can't believe you're in my arms. And there's almost like a giddiness, like, this is amazing. What I want us to see this morning is that same affection, that same emotion, that same tenderness that is on display there is how God sees you and me with that same amount of joy and love and even giddiness that you are my precious. And so the title of my sermon today is God Has Not Forgotten You. God Has Not Forgotten You. And we're gonna look at three signs of God's everlasting love. Three signs of God's everlasting love. Now, what we're in right now is chapter 49 of Isaiah, um, and we've been trudging through uh, Isaiah for a, a year or so now, and this is the, the second of four servant songs. Um, a, the servant songs are these, these hymnic, you know, poet, poetic songs written about a servant, written about the suffering servant who is there to deliver Israel from the evil Babylonian empire, Okay. But there is, there is a twofold exodus that is always at play when we're talking about the suffering servant. There is the, the deliverance from the, the physical realm, the physical deliverance from a tyrant, but there's also a spiritual deliverance 
that is always at play as well. And so you have a twofold exodus of delivering from the physical and the tyrant that would whip and tear your flesh, but also the tyrant that would rip and tear at your soul. And so that's what is happening here. And God says in verse 6, maybe one of the, the most wild uh, passages in the war, in, in the, in the, recorded in the Bible here, God says, oh, this is beautiful. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. It is too small a thing. God says, I've set the bar too low. I've set the bar too low. It's too small to restore the tribes back to their original home. It's too small to upend the whole world. It's too small of a thing for me to destroy an empire. Do you see like God saying, this, this is weak compared to what I can do. That's nothing. And, and I think when, we, when I read something like that, it makes me ask, like, maybe our prayers are too small. Like maybe our prayers are too small if God's saying, it's too small a thing for you to deliver the whole world, not just to bring you back home, but to, to have you be a light to everyone in the world. Maybe that's what's happening, that our prayers are too small. And I want to ask you the question, why? Why do we pray small prayers? There's something behind that that I think this passage is going to get at. Why don't we pray for the big things? We, we say, Lord, would you just tweak this thing in my life? Would you, would you alter this, something that seems attainable? And we don't pray the big, big prayers. Let's look in what's behind that. Verse 10 says this, they will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. This is such a beautiful passage. You just read this passage and you're like, oh, that's who you are, God. Oh, that's your character. That's the goodness of God on display right here. And it, God is so good, and this passage is building up, showing us, that, revealing the character of God as good as it is to where in verse 13, all creation responds, shout for joy, you heavens. The heavens are shouting for joy. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, mountains. Like, <laughs> this is the proper response to good news. It's jubilee. It's elation. It's joy. Who here has received some great news this last week? What, what, what's some of the great news? What's the great, what? You, you put your arm up. What, go ahead. Yeah. There you go. His company is doing well. One of three roasters recognized as roaster of the year. Way to go. That's just something awesome. Another? Yes, Katie. You got a what? A nephew. Did I hear that? <laughs> awesome. That's beautiful. I got a nephew. Okay. I was like, Netflix? That's, that's exciting. <laughs> Tell me about it. All right, one more, one more. Yeah. Yeah. 
Her mom has a great job that she really likes. Yes, yes. And this is the response to great news. Is there's joy, there's clapping, there's jubilee. That's the normal response to good news. And yet, in verse 14, Israel has the weirdest response to this great news of being delivered. In verse 14, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. <laughs> the Lord has forgotten me. <laughs> and you have to do it in that voice because Israel is like the proverbial Eeyore in this moment. It could be worse. Not sure how, but it could be. <laughs> like, what? How is that your response to this great news, Israel? Like, where's the joy? Where's the celebration? Y'all should be partying. Like, that's a spiritual act right there, to party, right? But, like, I get it as well. If you've grown up in an environment where you've been told, and in a culture where you've been told that you are trash, it's really hard to believe otherwise. If you've grown up in, in, in a space, and Israel had, as they were in slavery, we're told that their voices do not matter, and they have no agency, they have no control, no good thing, then it's really not surprising that you would doubt any good thing could ever exist in this life. And that may be where some of you are at here today. It's just, I don't know if I can trust any of these promises. Has any good thing ever come about and then God's talking about something like this? It almost feels offensive. And whether it's early childhood trauma or whether it's the simple effects of sin and the fall that have distorted and splintered everything in life, I think we need to see that those effects affect every single relationship we, we ever come in contact with. Like sin has spoiled every single relationship, whether it's with a friend, whether it's with a parent, whether it's with a spouse, whether it's with a roommate, sin affects that. But also it affects your own self-image. It also affects the image in your relationship even with yourself to where you, you don't respond to things the way you would have had you known early on the deep, deep love of Christ in your life. And so there's two typical responses to being told you are nothing or that you're trash. One is because you've been told that, then you're very insecure because someone has said you're not secure. And so you, you cling to that security and you usually cling to that with somebody else. You're desperate to matter and you can become overwhelmed with emotions. But another response to, being, to seeing the, how painful relationships can be in life is that you just live avoidantly and you become distant to protect yourselves. It's your self-protective superhero power. You don't want to get hurt and so you keep others at arm's length. You stay distant, you're uncomfortable with emotions and everything stays surface level. Do you struggle with either of these? I know we all do at some point. Do you struggle with that? Well, here's... What's the solution? I think the solution is to see the everlasting love of God in the midst of that. And so let's look at the three signs of God's love. It's the picture of God's love, the promise of God's love, and the proof of God's love. 
I promise the sermon points usually come earlier, and you're like, is this sermon an extra long one? <laughs> it's been adjusted. Okay, don't worry. And so let's look at the picture of God's love. Verse 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Mm. Is it, does it feel out of place to hear God liken himself to a mother? I want us to see this verse, remember this, mark it, highlight it. It's this wildly and beautifully intimate passage that God sees us as a mother sees their child. In that intimate connection, you realize how intimate and how close that connection is. I mean, at a child's very inception, they are joined to the mother biologically, right? They are joined to the mother physically. Um, I, I can think of when Kristen was, my wife Kristen was pregnant with Knox. Uh, Knox, raise your hand. You want, yeah, he's being called out. Sorry, buddy. Um, I asked your mom permission. I forgot to ask you. Um, sorry. Uh, when she was pregnant with Knox, she uh, had an unusual uh, craving for potatoes, um, an unusual craving for potatoes in all of its forms. Um, and to this day, if you now want to just really make my wife happy, you just bake her some mashed potatoes and she'll love you forever, <laughs> right? She would eat it in all of its forms. But what happens then when the mother eats potatoes, the child eats potatoes because there's that intertwined, right? And to this day, Knox, do you love potatoes? He hates them. <laughs> He can't stand them. <laughs> Even French fries, he can't take uh, because of that connection. It might have been overboard, right? <laughs> but that is, how, that is how close a mother and a child are. And God is saying, that's my relationship with you. It is that close. It is that intimate. And so we, we have that type of relationship. And, and even when, it, when a child is separated from their mother at birth, you literally have to cut the child out, right? You literally have to cut the umbilical cord because they're, so, they're so tied to one another. And what we, some of y'all know this because you've had newborns recently and you're living through this right now. You realize how difficult this relationship can be and how beautiful it is, but how difficult it can be. I can think of my brother Malcolm here <laughs> who's, who just knows how difficult it can be because most relationships are give and take. This relationship is all give <laughs> and no take. It is, it's, it's all give from the parent's perspective to care, to keep the child alive, and there's, there's no take. The, the child never responds and says, oh, thank you for feeding me. Oh, thank you for wiping me. Oh, thank you. No, in fact, when they burp, you might, some of y'all think maybe they burp thank you. They're like, thank you, right? <laughs> It's not real. Uh, if anything, they spit up on you, right? Is, so this is the relationship that God says that I have with you, that it's all give and I don't take. And so on one hand, God says, that's my, I'm likening my relationship with you as a mother with a child. But on the, on the other hand, God says, it's like that, but it's not like that. God also distinguishes himself from a mother, and, and says it's, it's, it's a little bit different. 
Because even mothers can forget their child. I mean, you can just turn on the news and you can just watch horror stories of parents forgetting their children, right? You can think of parents neglecting their children. So we know that that's possible. And so what God is saying is, I'm like it, but I'm not like that. Because even though mothers may forget, I will never forget. So there's something different about God in the sense. A mother may, may hold the child and, and see all the wrinkles and all the freckles in their child and just have so much love and care and affection for their child. But God can do that, and he can also count how many hairs are on the child's head. Psalm 56 says this, Record my misery, list my tears on your scroll, are they not in your record? God says, I'm going to list your tears. Like Parents can't do that. I'm going to list them, not just count them, but list them and know what they're about. That's the affection that God has for you. And so if you struggle to believe that God loves you, I want you to see that God, the way a mother holds their child and loves their child is the way God is, is, is looking at you and me. When a mother looks at the child and says, I see you, I love you, you're precious, that's how God sees us. That's the picture of God's love. All right, so now let's look at the promise of God's love. What does this mean for us? What does that picture mean for us? I think on one level, we have to recognize that, that Zion's feelings were real, but they weren't right. Like our, our emotional responses to things can be authentic, but sometimes they're not accurate. Like there's times when we have these feelings of despair and, and, and depression and discouragement and that, that's real, but there are also those times where you have to rebuke those feelings because you have not been forsaken. To rebuke those feelings with God's word that you have not been forsaken, you have not been left behind because the same God that is full of holiness and justice is also full of love. And so we have to be able to see that, that God is, is coming for you the way a mother comes for their child. And so what does that mean for Israel? Israel is, is wondering, I mean... <laughs> We've been taken from our land, and, and our children have been given away, have been kidnapped. Like, we don't have a land. We don't have, we don't have children. What, these promises feel empty. And God responds in some of the most wildly over-the-top ways and says, you're actually not going to have enough land to hold the amount of children that you're about to have. Verse 20 says, Yet, as you listen, the children that you have been deprived of will say, this place is too small for me. Make room for me so that I may settle. Is it too good to be true? Are these promises too good to be true? Like sometimes God's promises feel like they, they stand in direct opposition to our realities. And we go, I, I, can't, I can't imagine how God's going to work that out. I can't imagine that God would, would make something beautiful out of this mess. And What's beautiful is just because we can't imagine it doesn't mean God can't imagine it. Praise the Lord. Thank the Lord that his imagination is far bigger and better than my imagination. And that God says, 
I'm going to actually take these mountains that are in your way and obstructing your view, and I'm going to make those into highways. The same mountain that is, that is obstructing your path forward is the same one that's actually going to push you forward. This is God just giving hope in the midst of hopelessness over and over and over again. It is a wildly hopeful and beautiful passage here. And so God wants you to see that there is a deep, deep well of love he has for you. Why? Because verse 15, the, the second half of it says, though she may forget, I will not forget you. Though she may forget, I will never forget you. And so I, I want us to be able to experience this love of Christ, that God says, I actually want what's good for you. I, I want you to experience the good, the true, the beautiful. I want what's best for you. It's almost as if, God doesn't just love us. It's almost as if he actually likes us. One thing that me and Kristen say to each other every now and then is, I love you and I like you. I love you and I like you. Why do we say that? Because yes, love is the deeper magic, right? Love is a commitment in the face of death. You know, I'm through thick and thin, through, through health and not, right? For better, for worse, uh, I'm committed to you no matter what. And so, yes, I love you. But I also want to convey something just a little bit more than that. Not just that I'm committed to you. I want to be able to convey something a little more that I actually enjoy spending time with you. <laughs> I actually enjoy you as a human being. And so we say, I love you and I like you. And it's almost as if God is saying, I love you and I like you. I actually like you. And I think that's hard for some of us. We think maybe God just tolerates us. And we, we doubt that he treasures us. And this passage is pointing you away from that heresy. That God loves you and he treasures you. That I'm committed to you, but I also love you. And so if you're still doubting that, then let's go to the proof of God's love. Verse 16 says this, see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. God works with love-stained hands. I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now, Isaiah or God could have used any number of words at their disposal. They could have used tattoo. I've tattooed you on my hand. Chose not to. Could have used, I just write you on my hands. They chose not to. Why did God and Isaiah choose to use, I'm engraving you on my hands? Well, when you engrave something, it's with a chisel and a hammer. And you are chiseling the rock. And so it's as if God is saying, I chisel you into my hands. That's, that's a violent graphic image, right? <laughs> I chisel you into my hands. Not that that we write God's name on our hands, but that our name is written in God's hands. And so why did God use engrave? Well, I think one, it's, it's emphasizing the permanence of God's love for us. That it's not gonna fade away like, like a marker might fade away or even your tattoos might fade. But the chisel, it's this permanence of God's love, but it also 
When you chisel something into a rock, it's an artist chiseling its sculpture, its work of art. And so there's an artistry here where God is saying, I love you this much, I'm going to chisel you into my hands. And so why the hands? Because it's always with me and I will always see it. I'll always be reminded of my love for you. That's why God wants to engrave us into his hands. It's the proof of God's love. And there's another point in the scriptures where we we get the picture of God's love engraved on someone's hands. And that's when you go to the New Testament and you see this, this one of his disciples named Thomas, who's been given the moniker Doubting Thomas, who, like many of us, are doubting God's love for me. And Thomas is doubting that Jesus is who he says he is because he had just died and he's resurrected. He comes back from the death. And Thomas is like, is it really you? And Jesus says, look at my hands. In fact, he says, Thomas, touch. Touch my love for you. I want you to, I want you to really feel it, how deeply I care for you. This is, this is the love of the Lord bleeding out for us. It's proof of God's love that his wounds actually plead for us. And here's the wild thing that I've had to rethink over the years. It's not just that Jesus is pleading mercy on our behalf. I used to think that when, when we go before the Lord, God is, is, is so angry with us that he's about to smite us, and Jesus steps in at the last minute as a defense lawyer and says, let me plead mercy on his behalf. Please don't pour out your wrath on him. And it's this pleading for mercy, but I don't think that's actually accurate here. When we talk about Jesus pleading on our behalf, I think when Jesus goes before the Lord, before his father and says, Father, I am pleading for justice not mercy. I want justice. And if you pour out your wrath on him, then that's not fair. That's unjust. Because I've already taken the wrath. I've already taken the punishment. It's actually, you would be getting two payments for one. It would not be fair. And so when Jesus comes before the Father, he actually pleads justice and so that what that means is that changes our nature of how we think God sees us, that God actually now, it's in his nature to just to see you as his bride, as, as his love, as his child. That I love and care for you this much. You are beautiful to the Lord. Do you doubt the love of God? I want us to see this, that, that, that you've, been, you've been, what we, we talked about earlier, adopted into the God's family. You've been given a new family. This verse, uh, in verse 23, reminds us that kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. And so that what that means is that every child, every adult here is actually a foster child and we've been brought into a new family. We've been given a new family and new rights and privileges to live and enjoy living in that family. This is the love of Christ being reminded to be brought to bring us into that family. It's, this is the, the love of Christ that transcends all of these doubts that we may have. And so if you find yourself doubting God's love, I want us to rebuke that because that's not scripture. The picture of scripture is a mother caring for their child. And it, it, it's promising not to tolerate you, but to treasure you, to, to liberate and care for you. And the proof is, is in God's engraved hands. And so, so What? What are we going to do with this news this week? Well, 
Here's what what we're going to do. First, I want us to experience the love of God. How do you experience God's love? How do you actually feel it? For some of us that is coming into this room right here and and being encouraged and being reminded. And so this is a a way to experience God's love, to to be told and be reminded, whether through the preached word or the visible word of God's love. For some of us, that's having a, a, a time to be quiet and to meditate. For some of us, that's being out in nature and seeing God and his creation. Some of us, that's singing worship songs. Whatever. How do you experience God's love? I pick two ways this week and actually remind yourself of God's love for you. So sec- first, experience the love. Second, uh, repent and rebuke those negative thoughts with God's word. Repent and rebuke the negative thoughts. I mean, if we, if we have been impacted by a, a culture that's told us that we, we aren't worthy, that we are trash, and we've internalized those things, and now we are living in a way where we're keeping some people at distance or maybe we're clinging to others, I want us to repent of that, of these negative thoughts, and remind ourselves of how loved we actually are, and then rebuke those negative thoughts with God's word. Rebuke those thoughts of saying I'm trash with God's word that maybe God doesn't care about me. Use God's word. One passage you could look to is Lamentations 3. It's this wonderfully beautiful passage where Israel is in slavery while they're in the midst of it. And Jeremiah the prophet is preaching to them while they're lamenting this hard position they're in. And Jeremiah and God says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so let scripture remind you what is true. And so what are we going to do? We're going to experience the love. We're going to repent and rebuke the negative thoughts. And then lastly, let's pray big prayers. I think some of the reasons we're praying small prayers is because we doubt God actually loves us. We actually doubt what God's going to do in this world. But if we can see what God is doing, where he's going to reach the whole world, then let's pray those big prayers. Let's pray, if God actually loves you and likes you, then he wants what's best for you. And so we can pray those big prayers. So what are the things that you, you you're, have been on your heart and you've been doubting you could actually even continue praying for? Maybe it's someone you know who doesn't know the Lord and you're like, I've given up on them. Let's keep praying those prayers. What is it for you? Obviously, the Lord's not going to answer every prayer. Sometimes the Lord's answer to us is actually working on our own heart if our prayers aren't for our good. But let's, let's pray these big prayers. And so let's review, experience the love, repent and rebuke the negative thoughts, and let's pray big prayers. Let's pray now.